one of my daughter's favorite books is The Very Hungry Caterpillar. My wife and I love reading that book to her. In a very clever way, that book tells the story of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. And that remarkable phenomenon in nature is called metamorphosis. The change takes place when this little caterpillar with legs becomes a beautiful butterfly with wings. I want to talk to you this morning about spiritual metamorphosis. I want to talk to you about the difference that the Spirit of God makes in your life and makes in my life when He has His way. And we see a beautiful picture of this in 1 Samuel chapter 11. So turn there with me, 1 Samuel chapter 11, as we continue our study through this wonderful Old Testament book. First Samuel chapter 11, we'll begin reading in verse 1. I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. First Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, the Bible says, Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you, thus I will make it a reproach on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Verse 6, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. Let's pray together. Father, we pause to give you glory. Lord, you are the reason that we're here. You are the center of attention. And Lord, we are here bowing our hearts before your word. Lord, we say to you today, speak, for your servants are listening. Would you use your word to mold us, to transform us, to change us for your glory? And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. Lord, establish my steps in your word. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We've seen in the book of 1 Samuel that God removed wicked spiritual leadership and raised up a new spiritual leader named Samuel who would serve as his mouthpiece to the people of Israel. But the people did not like living in that manner. They didn't want a prophet to speak to them on behalf of God. They wanted an earthly king like all the nations around them. So they decided to cast off God's ultimate authority to follow the authority of, a, of an earthly ruler, a king. And God gives them what they want. An unwise decision on their part, but God gives them their request to teach them some very valuable lessons and to teach us some very valuable lessons. But even though they make an unwise decision and reject God's authority, God does not just wash his hands of the Israelites. 
he continues to work providentially uh, on behalf of his chosen people. And he is the one that names and anoints and raises up uh, the first king for the Israelites. And he uh, raises up a young man named Saul. We saw the story of how Saul was named king privately and publicly in chapters 9 and 10. But it's interesting to note that in chapter 9, after he is publicly named king, he returns home. It's like, well, I don't know what to do next. I'm just going to go back home and go back to my life as a farm boy. That's where we pick up our narrative here in chapter 11. Now, chapter 11 is a very interesting chapter. Chapter 11 was probably written in a chiastic structure. And chiasm is a a Hebrew literary device. And you say, what in the world is chiasm? Well, chiasm is when the opening element of of a section and the closing element in a section are parallel. Then the next uh, section and the next last section are parallel, and so on and so forth, till you get to a center point. Now look there uh, up on the screen. I have a picture of what this looks like, the literary device that was being used here in chapter 11. Notice that it begins with the king who oppresses and destroys in verse 1. It ends with the king who delivers and preserves in verses 12 through 15. Then notice the next sex- section of parallel uh, ideas. Ammon threatens in verse 2. Ammon flees in verse 11. Verse 3, they say, we will come out to you. Verse 10, they say, we will come out to you. Uh, verse 4, the messenger's bad news. Verse 9, the messenger's good news. Verse 5, Saul's inquiry and the response to him. Saul's message and the response to it. So notice the parallel in this chapter. But notice where this chiastic structure centers. It centers on verse 6. This is the center part of the narrative. The spirit rushes upon Saul. And chiasm was used to highlight one central idea. The center point is the role of the Spirit, and so the role of the Spirit is the central idea of this text. It's written very deliberately to point us to the role of the Spirit in Saul's life, so we understand the importance of the Holy Spirit. So, as this passage is meant to highlight the work of the Holy Spirit, I want to point out four truths about the Holy Spirit as we see it here in uh, Saul's life, and, and, and then talk about the application for our lives. So, if you look there with me, four truths about the work of the Holy Spirit that are pictured here in this section. First of all, we see the Spirit of God empowers ordinary people to perform extraordinary tasks. The Spirit of God empowers ordinary people to perform extraordinary tasks. Now, we read the first section of chapter 11. We saw that Nahash the Ammonite comes against the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and, and the men of Jabesh-Gilead were part of the Israelites. And Nahash comes to attack them, to overthrow them, to defeat them. And the men of Jabesh said, well, listen, can we, can we agree on some, some peace terms? We don't want to fight. We don't think we can beat you, so can we have peace? And Nahash said, I'll tell you what we'll do. Either I can come in and destroy you all, or I'll give you peace. But if I give you peace, I'm going to gouge out every man's right eye. That's not much of a deal, is it? So the men of Jabesh say, well, let us think about it. Let us see if we can get some help. And they ask for seven days to figure out what to do. Nahash is so arrogant that he thinks, well, it doesn't matter what they do. I'm going to defeat them uh, no matter what they come up with. And, and news about this threat from Nahash, the Ammonite, comes to Saul. And notice what Saul is doing there in verse 5. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. This 
This man who was anointed the first king of Israel doesn't know what to do as king, so he goes back to farming. He's a farm boy, and he's just doing his thing. But yet, news comes, and God's going to use this circumstance to propel Saul onto the stage as, as a leader, as a king. Now notice what happens in verse 6. He hears the news about the threat from the Ammonites. It says, The Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. So the Spirit of God rushes upon him. That's the word there in verse 6 where it says the, the Spirit came upon him. It's the word rushes. It's the same word that was used of Samson in the book of Judges. When Samson was empowered by the Spirit, it would use the phrase, the Spirit rushed upon Samson to give him the strength and the might he needed to lead the Israelites to victory in Judges. And so the Spirit rushes upon Saul. And notice what happens in Saul's life first. He's mad. He's angry. It's, it's righteous indignation. He hears of the threat and says, That's not right for this Ammonite to come and bully my people. That is not right. The Spirit stirred Saul up with a clear sense of justice. As the Spirit falls upon him, he is concerned about this issue. And sometimes there are some things happening in our families, things happening in our society, things happening in our world that, frankly, we're not too concerned about. We kind of turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to some very real matters that require our attention. But when the Spirit of God begins to have His way in our lives, suddenly we are concerned about the things we need to be concerned about. Suddenly we're concerned about people that are experiencing injustice. We're concerned about people that are lost and far from God. We're concerned about the things of God and the work of God in this world. When the Spirit of God has His way, we, we become concerned about the right things. We give attention to the things that demand or should demand our attention. That's what he does to Saul. Saul, this is not fair. This is not right. This, this, this Ammonite is a bully. This requires your attention. You're the king. And he's stirred up to a righteous indignation as the Spirit works in his life. And then notice that the Spirit gives Saul decisiveness. Leaders need decisiveness, and, and the Spirit gives it to Saul. He goes from, from plowing in the field to making some decisions. Look what happens in verse 7. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of Mester, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, shall, so shall it be done to his oxen. So he, he's making some, some drastic steps here. He's done farming. As a matter of fact, he takes an animal that was used for farming and cuts him up. And he sends the pieces of the oxen to the, the very corners of the nation of Israel and says, listen, you need to come fight. There's something here that requires our attention. If you don't come fight, then what happened to this oxen needs to happen to, to, to you. And it, and it gets their attention. This is Saul taking drastic, decisive steps of leadership to get the attention of the people. And the Spirit gives Saul this decisive, all, all of a sudden he's no longer a farm boy, right? All of a sudden he's a leader. He's, he's taking some steps to, to come against this bully named Nahash. And then notice that the Spirit caused people to respond to Saul's leadership. Look what happens in verse 7. He takes the yoke and cuts it up. Says it throughout the territory of Israel, whoever does not come out after Saul and after, after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then, it says, 
the dread of the Lord fell on the people and they came out as one man. So God gives the people a heart to respond to Saul's leadership and they come out as one man. As a matter of fact, look how many came out in verse 8. He numbered them in Bezek and the sons of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. 330,000 men rally to follow Saul's lead because the Lord caused them to want to follow Saul's lead. And so, notice what's happening here. Saul is preparing, I mean, the Lord is preparing Saul to be a leader, and he's preparing the people to follow the leader. God is working in this process. What God is doing is he's taking an ordinary farm boy, and he's making him a leader of men. He's taking someone that is ordinary, and he's about to use him for something extraordinary. He's, he's about to use him to lead his people to a great and glorious victory. Now, here's my question for all of us in this room today. Here in chapter 11, God took an ordinary man and used him for extraordinary purposes. Here's the question. Does God still do that today? Does God still take ordinary folks and use them for extraordinary things? The answer is yes, and that's good news. You know why? It's good news because we're ordinary, right? We're ordinary. And yet God, through the power of His Spirit, can take our ordinary lives and use our, or, our ordinary lives to make a major impact. The Spirit can use your life far beyond your own sense of potential. You think, well, I don't have anything to offer. Well, well you don't, apart from the Spirit of God. But when the Spirit of God begins to have His way in your life, when He begins to empower you, then all of a sudden your life can be used in extraordinary ways. Your life can begin to count. Your life can begin to make an impact. You're not just going through the motions anymore. You're not wasting your life. The Spirit of God begins to use your life. The Spirit of God empowers ordinary people like us to perform extraordinary tasks. We see that pictured in the life of Saul. But there's a second thing I want you to see about the Spirit. The Spirit of God imparts wisdom. The Spirit of God imparts wisdom. 33,000 men come out to, uh, to fight, to follow Saul's leadership. And look what it says in verse 9. They said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. In other words, they say, hey, go tell the men in Jabesh, help is on the way. Don't worry about this bully, we're coming to help you. It says, then the men of Jabesh said to Nahash the Ammonite, tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And I'm thinking, Nahash is thinking, oh yeah, come on. Come on, I'll show you who's boss in this whole situation. And he's waiting for them to come out to fight. Verse 11. The next morning, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. God gives the Israelites under Saul's leadership an extraordinary victory. Notice the wisdom here. He takes the, the, the 300,000 plus men and divides them into three companies. You see what God's doing here? God is not only showing Saul what to do, he showed him how to do it. There's allusion here to uh, Gideon. When Gideon fought the Midianites with how many men? How many men did Gideon fight the, the Midianites with? 
He sent thousands home, and he had how many? 300. And he divided them into three companies. And, and God worked in that, and God gave them a great victory. And Saul is dividing the thousands of men into three companies, and God gives them a resounding victory. The Spirit of God working in Saul's life gives him wisdom to be a good general, to make wise decisions. You see, this is important because Saul was called to be king. And he was going to need some help. But here's what I want you to understand. All of us have callings in our life. Right? All of us. We're all called to do something for Jesus. And we're called to certain roles. We're called to be spouses. We're called to be parents. We're called to be grandparents. We're called to be co-workers. We're called to be friends. We're called to, to minister for the Lord. We have all these callings in our lives. And our callings in life are too challenging and too important to face in our own wisdom. We cannot be who God has called us to be in our own wisdom. We're not smart enough. We're not wise enough. We need some help. We desperately need the wisdom of God, right? So not only do we need the Spirit of God to show us what we need to do, we need the Spirit of God to show us how we ought to do it. To cause us to be concerned about the right things. And then to lead us to show us how to address those things we need to address. We need His wisdom. And when the Spirit of God is operative in your life, when the Spirit of God has control of your life, you will see a, a godly wisdom begin to develop in your life. And you will begin to make wise decisions and go in wise directions because the Spirit of the living God is leading you. So the Spirit of God imparts wisdom. That's what He did for Saul. There's a third truth here. The Spirit of God glorifies the Lord. Look what happens in verse 12. Then the people, of, then the people said to Samuel after this great victory, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. If you remember last week, we saw in chapter 10 that for God named Saul king, some people said, we'll follow him. Some people said, we will not follow him. We don't think he'll be a good king. And now that they saw Saul's leadership in action and, and, and God used Saul to give them a great victory, they say, hey, bring those men out who didn't want to follow Saul. We'll kill them. They were wrong. This was Saul's chance to get revenge. Oh, some people didn't want to follow me? I'll show them who's king. I'll show them who's boss. This was Saul's opportunity to, to exact vengeance on his enemies. But look what happens. Saul said in verse 13, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Saul here is magnanimous. He, Saul says this is not a day for vengeance. This is a day for celebration because the Lord, the Lord has given us this victory. Notice Saul doesn't say here, who do they think they were? Look at my leadership. I'm a great king. I led us to a great victory. Bring them out so we can exact vengeance. No. Saul understands that it was the Lord that gave them this great victory. He, he points the people to the work of the Lord. Saul recognized God's hand in the victory. And here's the reality I want you to, to, to grasp hold of and understand. When the Spirit of God has control of our lives, He will always point us beyond ourselves to God. 
He'll always lead you to give God the glory for any good thing that happens in your life. That's the, that's the role of the Spirit. One of the quickest ways to discover if someone is Spirit-filled or not Spirit-filled is to see if life is all about them. If life is all about them, if there's a self-centeredness there, if there's an arrogance there, they are not filled with the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God causes us to point beyond ourselves to the one who makes our lives anything. God, right? The Spirit causes us to give God the glory. Not to say, boy, I'm great, look at what I did. The Spirit in us leads us to say, look at what God did. The Spirit of God, when He's operative, always leads us to give glory to God. That's true on the individual level. That's true on the church level. When we start saying, hey, look at what we did. We're a great church. We're in trouble. That means the Spirit of God's not having His way in our church because if the Spirit of God is having His way in our church, we will be saying, to God be the glory, great things He has done. So the Spirit of God always points us beyond ourselves to Him. The Spirit of God glorifies the Lord. And then fourth, I want you to see that the Spirit of God gives victorious joy. Notice what happens next in this text. Verse 14, Then Samuel, the prophet of God, said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. Let us refocus upon the Lord. Verse 15, So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. Again, another public ceremony. He already had a public ceremony in chapter 10, but this is them saying, okay, we get it now. He really is the king. We saw him lead. He's our king. They have another public ceremony uh, naming him as king. And it says there they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. They're, they're having a worship service. They're making offering to the Lord, recognizing God's hand. And it says there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. I like that. Now we're going to see as we journey through 1 Samuel that Saul did not have a very good ending. He didn't finish well. We'll talk a lot about that in the coming weeks. But he started well. With God's help, with God working in his life, Saul had a great start. And God uses him for a great victory. And he recognizes God's hand. And they get together and they have this worship service that says they rejoice greatly. See, God gave them victorious joy. They knew God had given them the victory. And I want you to hear this. An overflowing life leads to unfettered joy. When our life is overflowing with the work of God, when the Spirit of God has control, when the Spirit of God is leading and guiding and directing our lives, when our lives are not being wasted, but we see our lives actually being used by God to expand His kingdom for His purposes, we start to say, wow, God is good and there's a joy when your life is not being wasted, right? There's joy. Maybe some of you here this morning are joyless. You're just going through the motions and there's no unfettered joy in your life because there's no victory because the Spirit is not controlling you. The Spirit is not having His way in your life. When the Spirit of God has His way, things begin to happen. When things begin to happen, joy fills up your life. Unfettered joy. The Spirit of God gives you that. Now here's the big question. We see this picture of the Spirit of God rushing upon Saul. 
using him for extraordinary things, giving him wisdom, causing him to glorify the Lord, giving him joy. The question is, okay, wait, if the Spirit does all of that, how can the Spirit of God do that in my life? The question is, how can we know that the Holy Spirit is operating in our lives? Because we want that, don't we? We want to be used in extraordinary ways. We want joy. We want wisdom. We want that. How do we know the Holy Spirit is, is working in our lives? First of all, a little bit of Holy Spirit 101. When we say Holy Spirit, we're referring to the third person of the Godhead, the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity said that there's one God in essence and nature existing in three persons, co-equal and co-eternal, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. God the Holy Spirit is just as much God as God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is just as much God as God the Father. Now, my experience in church growing up was we talked a lot about God the Father, a lot about God the Son, not so much about God the Holy Spirit, even though he's the third person of the Godhead. And so the Spirit of God is part of the Trinity. He's, he's God, God himself. A lot of times when people talk about the Spirit of God, they refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. Like the Holy Spirit is some you know, kind of impersonal energy or force in the universe. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. The third person of the Trinity. And I want you to see how we can know the Holy Spirit is operating in our life. Number one, we have to be indwelt by the Spirit. We have to be indwelt by the Spirit. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 9. The Bible says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So, how do you know if the Spirit of God dwells in you? Look, notice what it says. If anyone does not have the Spirit of who? Of Christ, Jesus, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So if you know Christ, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, has come to take up residence in your life. That happens at the moment you're saved. It happens at the moment of conversion. So if you're a Christian, here's the, the incredible reality. God himself lives in you. That's amazing. Isn't that not, not, not amazing? The Spirit of God lives in you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to show you the connection here between knowing Christ and being indwelt by the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In Him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of, your, of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, so you heard about Jesus, you believed in Jesus, you were sealed in Him with who? The Holy Spirit of promise. So the moment you believed in Jesus, the moment you were saved, you were sealed, you were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, living on the inside of you. 1 Corinthians 6 says that, that now we're believers. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. 
You see, every follower of Jesus is indwelt by the Spirit of God. So, if you want the role of the Spirit, if you, I mean, if you want the Spirit of God working in your life, first of all, you've got to be saved. Gotta, he's got to be living inside of you. That's step number one. That's a New Testament reality. Secondly, not only do we have to be indwelt by the Spirit, we have to be filled with the Spirit. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Ephesians 5, verse 18. The Bible says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Interesting verse. Do not be drunk with wine. That's meant to serve as a as a an illustration of what he means by being filled with the Spirit. You see, wine controls you, right? You begin to drink wine, and the alcohol in the wine begins to control your motor skills, your thinking, your speech, all of that begins to control you. So here's his point. Don't be drunk with wine. Don't be controlled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, let the Spirit control you. Instead of letting wine control you, but let the Spirit of God control you. So to be filled by the Spirit means to be controlled by Him. It means He is calling the shots in your life. He is leading you and guiding you and empowering you for the task at hand. Now there are four different aspects of this verb in Ephesians 5.18, be filled. It's a really fascinating verb. There's a lot in the grammar of this verb. For example, this verb is in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not, well, I really hope you'll be filled with the Spirit. You know, I, I think it's a good idea if you are filled with the Spirit. No, it's, a, it's an imperative. It, it's a command. You are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. A command from God. Not a suggestion, a command. Secondly, it's plural, which means it's meant for all Christians. He's not talking to one individual person in the church in Ephesus. He's talking to the entire church. You all are to be filled with the Spirit. Everybody look at me for a moment. The filling of the Spirit is not some special experience for preachers and missionaries. The filling of the Spirit is a command for all believers. We are all commanded to be controlled by the Spirit of God. We are all to experience this. It's not some... Some, we, we try to segment Christians and there's a, you know, the clergy class and the laymen and all. Listen, we're all called to be filled with the Spirit. Third, it's passive voice. Which means the filling comes from a source other than ourselves. Be filled with the Spirit. In other words, this is not you practicing self-help. Trying to improve your own life. This is you being acted upon by someone else, the Spirit, making you who you need to be. And then fourth, it's a present tense verb, which means this is to be a repeated, continual event. You could even translate it like this. Be filled and keep on being filled by the Spirit. So it's to be a, a continuous, daily, repeated event. You see, all Christians are Sealed in the Spirit. The moment you met Christ, the Spirit came to live on the inside of you, right? You're indwelt by the Spirit. All Christians are sealed in the Spirit, but not all Christians are filled with the Spirit. We all, we're, we're not all obeying this command to be filled. The sealing is a 
one-time completed event. It happens when you're saved. The filling of the Spirit is to be renewed continuously and repeatedly, day by day. It's to happen constantly in your life. The filling of the Spirit, listen to me, does not deal with how much of the Spirit you have. It deals with how much of you the Spirit has. See, when you were saved, you got all of the Holy Spirit. Not just part, you got all of Him. Amen? You have everything of the Spirit you're ever going to have. He, he lives inside of you. The question of the filling of the Spirit is this. Does He have all of you? Does He have control of your life? If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is resident in your life. But here's the question. Is the Holy Spirit president of your life? Is he boss? Is he calling the shots? Which leads to this obvious question. Okay, Wade, how can I be filled with the Spirit? I mean, how do I live that out? How do I obey this command? Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, that's excess, but be filled with the Spirit. How do I obey that command? It's a command. It's continual, repeated. How do I obey that? Well, let me give you some thoughts here. These thoughts come from from Bill Bright. He's the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, and I worked with Campus Crusade for a summer uh, before my last semester of college, and, and I learned a lot in that, in that time. I, I got to meet, meet Bill Bright. He's since gone, he's gone on to be with the Lord. I got to meet him and his wife, Vonette, and spend some time with them, and, and we were given a tract during that summer that was titled, Have You Heard of the Wonderful Spirit-Filled Life? And my answer to that question was, well, no, I haven't. Grew up in church, you know, I'm saved, knew Jesus, but I didn't know much about the Spirit-filled life. We didn't talk much about the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead, so I didn't really know the answer to that question. So I began to read this tract written by Bill Bright where he talks about how we are filled with the Spirit. He gives some practical help, some application as to how we can live with the power of the Spirit in our lives. And here's what it says in this tract. First of all, we need desire, desire. We've got to want to obey that command, right? To be filled. We've got to want, listen, we've got to want the Spirit to have control. Now listen to me, not everybody wants that. Some people are just fine going through the motions, doing their own thing. They don't really want the Spirit to have control because they know when the Spirit has control, things are going to start to change. He's going to start to deal with some stuff in your life, amen? So you've got to have that desire. Turn to uh, Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Show what Jesus says. Luke eleven thirteen. Jesus says, "If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, the, the, the illustration here is if, if your child comes and asks you for a loaf of bread, you're not going to give him a, a rock. If your child asks for a for a fish, you're not going to give him a snake. That I means." Just parents know that you need to give your kid what's best for them, not what could hurt them. He says, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who what? Ask Him. Do you have a desire? Do you, want to, do you even want the Holy Spirit to have control? Do you want to ask Him to fill up your life? Romans 12, 1 and 2 Paul writes, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable 
unto the Lord. Not being conformed to this world. Listen, but being transformed. You know the word transformed is there? It's where we get the word metamorphosis from. Being transformed. We're talking about spiritual metamorphosis. More dramatic than a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. We're talking about a a transformed life. And, And if we give our lives to God, if we surrender to Him, He begins to transform us. The Spirit does that. The question is, do you have that desire? You know, we sing some good hymns that communicate that desire to the Lord. Hymns like, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. Can you say to God, have your way in my life. I desire for you to be in control. We sing songs like, I surrender some. Is that how the song goes? How's it go? I surrender what? Oh! We sing that song, do we mean it? You can have all of my life. Spirit, I want you to fill me, control me, guide me, lead me, direct me. You have to have the desire. And hopefully, if this sermon does anything for you, if we look at this picture of of a Spirit-empowered life in, 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 in Saul, hopefully you'll have that desire for the Spirit to empower your life. And then next, you have to practice spiritual breathing. This is an a illustration that, that Bill Bright gives to help us understand practically how we can be filled with the Spirit. Spiritual breathing. Now, when you breathe, you go through a very natural process. You inhale and you exhale. And you inhale and you exhale. And so spiritual breathing involves, first of all, exhaling. Bill Bright used that to illustrate confession of sins. 1 John 1, 9, the Bible says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, over in John chapter 7, I want you to hear me carefully. Over in John chapter 7, Jesus says, From your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And it says in the next sentence that Jesus spoke of this concerning the Spirit. So the Spirit is compared to a river of living water flowing through our lives, right? So if, you're, if you are saved, the, the, the Spirit of the living God lives in you. The, spirit of li- the, 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 the river of living water is flowing through your life. Now if you go to any river, and you begin to take large rocks and put them in the stream, if you put enough rocks in that stream, that river will begin to dam up, right? The, the river will not flow. The rocks impede the progress of the river. Now the Spirit is like a river of living water in our lives. Listen to me. Sin is like rocks that dam up the flow of the Spirit. If we have unconfessed sin in our life, the Spirit of God is not in control of our life. He's living in us, but He's not flowing through us. We've got this sin in our life that we need to deal with, that that affects our fellowship, our closeness with God. And one of the sad realities of of American Christianity is many never stop to say, God, show me where I failed. Show me where I've blown it. Show me the sin of my life so I can confess it and get it out of my life. We see David do this in Psalm 51. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. When was the last time you asked God for a clean heart? When you asked God to 
to, to get that sin out of your life, that, that unconfessed sin. You confess and said, Lord, it's a sin. I've blown it. I don't want it to take root in my heart. I don't want it to take root in my mind. I want it out of my life. I confess it as sin. Lord, remove it. Give me a clean heart. That's called confession. I want to encourage you to daily, daily practice confession. Exhale those sins. Evaluate your life and say, where am I missing it? What have I done that's, that's not right? What's hindering my, my closeness with God? What's hindering the, the flow of the Spirit in my life? And as you confess those sins, it's like those rocks are coming out of the river. And the river that was dammed up and not moving with power through your life begins to flow unimpeded. That's called exhaling. Confessing your sins to the Lord. But then after you exhale, what do you got to do to breathe? What, what comes next? All right, everybody inhale for me. Everybody ready? Inhale. Now, what's he mean by inhaling? By inhaling, Bill Bright wrote, you invite the Holy Spirit to take control of your life and receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit by faith. Trust that he now directs and empowers you according to the command of Ephesians 5.18 and the promise of 1 John 5. So listen, you confess your sin, you, you, you let God evaluate your life, and you ask God for a clean heart, and then you say, Holy Spirit, will you fill me? I want you to empower my life. And then, you may not have a, 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 a warm, fuzzy experience. You may not feel chill bumps. But then, by faith, you know that if you ask him, he's doing it. See, in Ephesians 5.18, he commands us, be filled, right? And then in 1 John 5, it says, if we ask anything according to his will, he'll answer us. So, is it God's will for you to be filled with the Spirit? Yes or no? How do we know? He commanded us, right? So if you ask him according to that command, Holy Spirit, fill me, will he do it? Yes. And by faith you believe, okay, I asked him to fill me, I believe he's doing it. I believe he's going to guide me, direct me, empower me, lead me in my life today. That's called inhaling. So you exhale your sin, you confess your sin, then you ask, you inhale, you ask the Spirit to fill up your life. He's already there. Now you're asking him to fill you up so that you're not controlled by anything else other than the Holy Spirit of God. Now in the case of Saul, the Holy Spirit rushed upon him. But for the New Testament believer, there's a difference here. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And he fills us up from the inside out and overflows from our lives. So if you want to experience spiritual metamorphosis, if you want God to have his way in your life, you have to be a Christian. He has to indwell you first. And then you have to daily, repeatedly, continually confess your sin and ask the Spirit to fill you. And if you will do that, you'll begin to see a difference in your life. A new wisdom in your life. A new power in your life. A new attentiveness to spiritual things in your life if you'll let the Spirit of God have His way. So the question is, do you want spiritual metamorphosis? Do you want something much more dramatic than a caterpillar becoming a butterfly? Do you want your life to be transformed and used by God? If so, it'll happen as the Spirit of God fills up your life.